Hello, Shiver Seekers. Are you ready to follow us into the unknown? I'm Cynthia. And I'm Stephanie. And you have found the Dark Oak. In today's episode, we will cover the only unsolved airplane hijacking in U.S. history. That's right, folks. We got some D.B. Cooper coming your way. I'm so excited. I'm such a fan of this guy. I know he's a bad guy and I shouldn't be, but I'm really rooting for him. Root for that little guy. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to The Dark Oak, the mystery podcast with purpose. Each month through the Branch of Hope Fund, we give a portion of our earnings from our Patreon and our sponsors to a nonprofit organization related to the first two episodes of the month. The best part is you get to help us decide where our money goes. To find out how you can be a part of the movement, head over to thedarkoak.com or stay with us until the end of the episode and we will give you all of the details. You know, I love talking about the Branch of Hope, Cynthia. It just I don't know. It makes this whole podcast go around for me. I love the cases we talk about, but Branch of Hope always makes me feel good. Branch of Hope, I have to say, has been so rewarding. We knew it would be because that was a void for us. We wanted to give back to the communities we're talking about. Yeah. But then we've developed some of the coolest relationships with... Yeah, with these nonprofits. Yeah, that's true. Well, Cynthia, I will tell you, this was such a wild ride for me. The case itself is pretty riveting. But what I didn't realize is what a cult-like following D.B. Cooper has. You're shaking your head yes, so you knew this was a thing. Well, I mean, probably not to the extent that it actually is. But I just know how I feel about it. And like I said, I think the guy's kind of cool. I mean, he's a bad guy. He hijacked a plane. He totally hijacked a plane. Exactly. But nobody was hurt. Which I think Spoiler is why, alert. <laughs> which is, I think is why I give him a pass. He didn't hurt anybody. He just scared some people. And trust me, I would not have wanted to be on that plane. But well, I'll tell you some more details about the actual hijacking. But. D.B. Cooper, to say the least, has become a hero to a lot of people, just like you. And there are people out there, private investigators, regular laymen who have kind of dedicated their lives to finding out who D.B. Cooper was. They even call themselves Cooperites. Oh, wow. That's a whole thing. It's a whole thing. There are conventions. There are conferences. There are podcasts. There are blogs. There are vlogs all dedicated to only talking about D.B. Cooper. Okay, I didn't know it went that deep. I just thought I was kind of an isolated weirdo, but Uh, maybe I should look into this. No, girl, this is fascinating. Some of this is about telling you the hijacking case just to kind of catch everyone up to speed. Some is about covering a few of the suspects. But the fact of the matter is, there is no way I could fit everything about D.B. Cooper into one case. So my goal here is to give you enough to be able to speak to a Cooperite intelligently. Okay. That's my goal is to catch you up to speed enough. And I will tell you about some of the researchers and what they're doing. And I'll give you some links to other podcasts and things. So if you are decide that after this, you are a Cooperite, you know where to go from here. But I'm just telling you off the bat, this is not going to be a comprehensive list. I do not know who D.B. Cooper is. I'm just telling you what 
I was able to find out and I'm kind of encapsulating it in what is truly just the tip of the iceberg. Okay. So this is a good place to start your research. A good place to start. And again, it's a fascinating case. It's going to be very fun. But, you know, normally I come to the table and I'm like, listen, I got some good theories. Uh, This one, I have no idea um, who D.B. Cooper was. And the fact of the matter is there are thousands of people that have put in untold amount of money and manpower into it. And they still don't know who he is either. So which is what makes him like so cool. It it really is just like <laughs> for those of you who don't know the story, you're about to find out. I mean, what a what a guy. He did some pretty crazy things. Yeah. So let me go ahead. I'm going to give you the basics okay. of what happened on the morning of November 24th, 1971. Now, it was the day before Thanksgiving, which also kind of plays into this day before Thanksgiving. Busy travel day, right? Busy travel day. Busy cooking day, too. <laughs> busy. Tra- well, for all the moms out there, yes. Busy <laughs> you know where day. I go with this. Like, yep, I'm gearing up for four <laughs> o'clock wake up call the next morning. But even now, huge travel day. Yes. Um, on the roads. And at this point in 1971, the air travel boom was really starting. Okay. Right. This was when they were really a lot of advertisements. They were trying to get people comfortable with the idea of flying. It was this luxurious, fun travel experience. And people still dressed to fly. Yes. All of that. All of that. How could you travel by road or by train this is a peasants yes peasants (laughs) it's much more fun to fly and really it was just the excitement around air travel okay on this day before thanksgiving 1971 a very average man dressed in a suit a hat and sunglasses walked into the airport in portland oregon and purchased a ticket for a flight on that day from portland to seattle Okay, so let's talk about that a little bit. When's the last time you ever just walked into an airport and said, I'd like to buy a flight? (laughs) I can say I've never done that. Never. But that was very common. Well, yeah, they didn't have the internet. Well, they didn't have the internet. That's absolutely true. How else would you buy a ticket? I wouldn't even know how else to do it. Well, you used to call in. You would call into the airline. Wouldn't know how. (laughs) (laughs) Well, like our parents. So the generation before us. Okay. You would call in. Okay. You would give them your credit card over the phone and they would literally mail you physical tickets. Wow. Okay. I did not know that. Yeah. They would mail you physical tickets or you could pick it up at the ticket counter, but they would mail you your tickets that you had to take to the airport. Okay. Is this like a trip tick? Have you ever heard of a trip tick? No. Okay. So this is another weird travel vintage thing. But when I was a kid in the 80s, when we would go on road trips, my dad would go somewhere, I think maybe AAA. Okay. And get something called a trip tick. And I think it was like a map of wherever we were going. Maybe there was some informative information. Oh. That's all I know. I just remember always having to like go get a trip tick. So if any of you listeners know what that is, maybe fill us in. What is this like the precursor to like MapQuest? I or think something? so, because it was like and a if package. It's, if it's through Triple A, maybe they had like certain rest stops that you could go to and it had emergency numbers. Maybe it was almost like putting in like a flight plan, but for okay. road trips. So okay. they know where you're going, maybe. Okay. I don't know. That's interesting. I'm yeah. gonna have to look into that. No, but this was just he just an average man walked in. And did an average exchange on a busy day and said, hey, I want a ticket on your plane from Oregon to Seattle. Okay. This afternoon. So he paid for it. And again, no security. 
right? He just right. walked into the counter. 1971. And then you walk onto the plane. Right. There's no security of yes. any kind, which is also wild to me to think about how air travel has changed so much between then and now. So went in, purchased the ticket, said, I'm going to get on here this afternoon and just walked onto the plane that afternoon. Now, the flight takes off. This man's sitting kind of towards the back of the plane. And he casually hands the stewardess after she had given him his cocktail. And also he's smoking well, on the plane because of, of course. course. Remember, it's a fun flight. Why? How could you not? <laughs> so he casually hands the stewardess a folded note. Now, back in the day, this was also, again, the fun of flying. Stewardesses were a little objectified. And this time, this is oh, the sure. time when it was like, come fly with these very attractive women and these very small skirts and let them take care of all your needs. I mean, it was kind of gross, really, the whole thing. But it was this culture of stewardesses, again, being really objectified and sexualized. And so for a man, a businessman to hand the stewardess a note, it was probably like the third one she had received that day, right. to be frank. I mean, sure. it's like, oh, great. Another pass. This note, though, came off a little different. She read the note, which communicated that this average looking man had a briefcase with a bomb in it and that the stewardess should go and tell the pilot that he was now demanding a ransom. He instructed the pilot to call into air control in Seattle and request $20,000 along with four parachutes, which were all to be waiting for them when they arrived in Seattle. Now, $20,000 doesn't seem a lot by today's standard, but at that time, I've seen different estimates, but it was somewhere between like a million and $1.5 million. Wow. So that's a big sum of money. Sure. A big sum of money. Another stewardess heard what was going on and came back to see if she could assist. And this hijacker casually opened his briefcase and showed what looked like a battery and several sticks of dynamite. Okay, so scary. Scary. And he told her, all I have to do is hook these two little wires together and we're all going down. Now, scary. Sure. And at that time, there were actually a lot of plane jackings. Mostly they were like refugees. There were a lot that were hijacking planes to take them to Cuba. So hijackings were not uncommon at that point. Now, normally they weren't for ransoms. They were just to transport people from A to B. But the fact of the matter is the stewardesses weren't like taking any chances here. They they felt like, okay, this is a real threat. And the pilot did the same thing. And actually the flight crew on this whole thing stayed tremendously calm. The pilot radioed in the demands. And then the pilot made an announcement to the cabin of unsuspecting passengers, right? Because this is just passed with a note. They have no idea what's going on, that they were having a small fuel issue. And he asked all the passengers to move to the front of the plane. So everybody said, oh, OK, now I'm not sure why they thought that would help the fuel issue, but whatever. It doesn't matter. They all just kind of moved to the front of the plane. And so the only one sitting in the back now was this hijacker and a stewardess. There was kind of this like carousel of stewardesses, but there was always one next to him because okay. they said, I need someone to kind of be like a go between okay. between me and the pilots. The hijacker continued to sit calmly in the rear of the plane, sipping his cocktail, smoking his cigarettes. <laughs> He never raised his voice. He never displayed any kind of anxiety or nervousness. Nothing but cool, collected decisions. 
He even entertained the stewardesses with like chit chat and small talk. The only thing that really came out of that is he seemed to show some kind of irritation with his employer at the time, but never would elaborate. He instructed the pilot to continue to circle the Seattle airport until his demands were met. And of course, at that time, it meant everybody running around to Seattle banks to try to collect this amount of money that they could give for ransom. Right. Oh, I didn't even think of that. Yeah. So it's a collect. They're trying to run. You can't just like wire transfer something over. Well, right. And he had requested $20,000 in like this certain kind of like zipped up briefcase. And so, I mean, not every bank just has a million dollars in cash sitting around. So they had to go to several different banks to collect all this money and get four parachutes. So they had to circle the airport several times. Again, passengers had no idea. Right. They just... You know, they're oblivious. Like, yeah. oh, man. Yeah. So they, they are oblivious. They well, they're no just smoking going. and drinking and enjoying their, <laughs> exactly. their time in the hitting, air. Hitting on the stewardesses. <laughs> right. <laughs> now, I want to stop for a minute and talk about the fact that he requested four parachutes. That's interesting, isn't it? It is interesting. Because if he had requested $20,000 and one parachute, there certainly would have been a chance that that parachute could have been tampered with. Right. Because the assumption would have been the hijacker is going to use the parachute. Right. But by seeing four parachutes, the assumption would be he's going to take hostages. Mm-hmm. And so you don't want to tamper with the parachutes because one of the hostages could be wearing that parachute. Right. Anyway, I just thought that was really fascinating. It's It just goes to show he's... That's what I like about this guy is he's so calm and cool and charming and smart. It, like ridiculously smart. Because he doesn't take hostages. He does not take hostages. No, he doesn't right. wind up taking any hostages. The, but the the thought was, right. I could, mm-hmm. and so I need these extra parachutes. So mm-hmm. anyway, I just thought that was that's very pretty brilliant. Yeah. So the plane has to circle Seattle a few times before all of the supplies can be assembled. And during this time, the weather starts changing and a storm is rolling in. Mm-mm. So it's literally turning into a dark and stormy night. Over Seattle (laughs) while this plane jacking is going on. So it's finally time for the plane to land, which it does on a far aft tarmac about a mile from the actual airport. And of course, they landed him on the tarmac and there are snipers kind of lining the runway to see if there was an opportunity to remove this hijacker. But Cooper, upon landing, instructs all the passengers to lower their shades. Oh, see, he's so smart. So smart. So the plane essentially goes dark. There's no visibility mm-hmm. in the plane. Once the demanded goods are loaded onto the planes, he allows all the passengers to disembark the plane and they all file off. It wasn't that unusual to deboard a plane on a tarmac mm-hmm. back in the 70s. You know, right now that would be kind of unusual to use like the staircase down, but that, that was pretty common at the time. And so, it's pretty common in smaller airports because I've done it in small airports. Yes, absolutely. They all disembarked the plane completely Still oblivious. Still oblivious. They knew something. Just please close your shades. (laughs) They knew something was a little weird, but they had no idea what was going on. They wind up getting in a bus that was waiting for them. There were 36 passengers. Okay. They get off. They wind up getting on a bus that drives into the airport. And as they're going to the airport, they're like, by the way, your plane was hijacked. Can you imagine? No. I just got chills as you said that. Just putting myself in that position for a second. Also, how oblivious are people? I think right now, because of current circumstances with security and everything, I think we would be much more aware of what was going on. At least I like to think that we would be. 
I don't know that we would. It's not coming from a bad place, but people are just so wrapped up in themselves and what's going on that I think the majority of people don't notice anything that's not directly affecting them. That's probably true. I am really into my onboard entertainment. Right. So <laughs> maybe I would be oblivious. Now, see, too. I, as we know, am claustrophobic and afraid of heights and just have weird phobias in general. I do not like flying. So I look on the plane and I'm like, any one of these people could be about to hijack this plane. I'm constantly worried that my seat is suddenly just going to get sucked out the window. I am never relaxed on a plane. So I, this current Boeing situation really made you feel oh, comfortable I, with the door fly. I literally was like, that's my worst nightmare. That's my, that's literally my fear the whole time I'm in the air is just all of a sudden my seat's just going to get sucked out. Wow, that's intense. It's pretty intense. Make sure you keep your seatbelt on. Then I'm stuck to the seat. <laughs> well, wouldn't you rather be stuck to the seat than nothing? It wouldn't matter at that point. You actually have played out this scenario way too many times in your head. Oh, it's I'm not joking when I say the entire time I'm on the plane, I am concerned that my seat is going to get sucked out. Well, I can almost definitively say that there were no Cynthia's on this DB <laughs> Cooper. Obviously Because I would have had that guy pegged. <laughs> now, the flight crew was instructed to stay on board with DB Cooper. So now he's got his parachutes, he's got his ransom money, and he's got the flight crew. And he tells the flight crew to refuel the aircraft and begin a second flight to Mexico City with a refueling stop in Reno, Nevada. The whole flight crew is in the flight deck with the exception of, again, the single stewardess that's back there with Cooper. And this time it's a young woman named Tina Mucklow. And right after takeoff, Cooper tells Tina to go into the flight deck and tell the pilot to fly at only 250 miles an hour at minimum height. She does this and comes back and is like, the pilot said it's not possible. Like, we can't do that. And he responds with, yeah. It can be done. Do it. So you know, this is very interesting. This he knows some dynamic. stuff. Or maybe he just got lucky. I don't know. Oh, you think? Oh, it's I feel like. It's a possibility. Most people think this definitely leans to some kind of aeronautical training, military training, those kinds of things. I feel like he has to. Because if you told me we can't do that, I'd be like, oh, yes, I can't do that. And so so he tells her, tell him, do it. And when you go up there, I want you to close the flight deck door behind you. And everybody stays sealed up front. So everybody's sealed inside the cabin except for himself. Exactly. With his money and his parachutes. I'll reiterate, even Tina says to this day that the Skyjacker wasn't nervous. And he, quote, seemed rather nice other than he wanted certain things to be done. End quote. You're about to tell us what he does. But the fact that he tells them, go into the flight deck, mm -hmm. close the door behind you and stay there is like he's... He's not wanting anybody to get hurt. Right. Around 8, 12 p.m., about 30 minutes after taking off from Seattle, the crew felt their ears pop, indicating that the cabin pressure had changed. And after a few more moments, the captain of the plane, who had also stayed, again, incredibly calm during this ordeal, simply says, I believe our friend has taken leave of us. Ooh, I just got chills again. Yeah. And he was correct. The hijacker had opened the aircraft's aft door, deployed the staircase, removed his black clip-on tie from J.C. Penney and parachuted into the stormy night over southwestern Washington. And Cooper has never been seen since. The legend of D.P. Cooper was created. I love it. Yeah. This is truly, again, where this folk legend of D.P. Cooper just spirals. 
people were hearing about this hijacking on Thanksgiving Day. And honestly, people were enthralled. Cooper immediately became, again, this national sensation. And it was this real American story of like the little guy sticking it to the man and kind of like a modern day Robin Hood, if you will. Even his name, I don't know if you know this, is not his real name. The name D.B. Cooper is not the hijacker's name that he registered with. Okay, I I don't know that this is ringing a bell. When Cooper signed in at Portland, he wrote his name down as Dan Cooper. But in a press conference, one reporter accidentally heard D.B. Cooper instead of Dan. And he wrote it down incorrectly as D.B. Cooper. And it was quickly corrected. But everyone collectively decided that D.B. Cooper sounded like a much better outlaw name. And so it stuck. It does, though, doesn't it? Of course it does. But the fact that 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 is not not even even what he registered. That's funny. Yeah. So he really is Dan Cooper. Now, whether that's his. I would assume it's not. It's probably not. But he's too smart. (laughs) He's too smart. But he registered as Dan Cooper. And now it's D.B. Cooper. D.B. Cooper. That's funny. Yeah. I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. Now, the FBI started to try to piece together as much as they could about this D.B. Cooper. And firstly, it was thought that Cooper must have had military experience, Mm -hmm. especially because, you know, the whole jumping out of a plane situation. You you need to have a little bit of an idea of what you're doing to do that properly. Yeah. But outside of that, the FBI didn't have much to go on. And over the years, they investigated over a thousand suspects. Wow. One of the first suspects to come out was a man named Roger Floyd McCoy. And he emerged a few months after the Cooper hijacking because Floyd also hijacked a 727. I mean, that would kind of tie both cases together. He was also an experienced parachutist who had experience in Vietnam. And to look at his picture, he does resemble the sketch of Cooper that had been released to the public. The problem was when they presented his photo to all the eyewitnesses, i.e. like the stewardesses aboard the plane, everybody said he wasn't the guy. Then I don't think that's the guy. Probably not the guy. Or. (laughs) Or. What if this guy was just so charming? I mean, I know this is crazy. This is like a movie. But what if he was just so charming they didn't want to give him up? And they were like, no, that's not him, even though it was. Well, I think that's a little bit more fairy ish But it's, I mean, I suppose it's possible. Again, he did threaten their lives, though, to be fair. He did threaten to blow them out of the sky. Okay. All right. Does that I hold guess. any weight? I mean, yeah, I, I think I would have had to have been there. <laughs> I feel like you have a crush on D.B. Cooper I might right have now. A crush on... He's just like a little bit of a bad boy, but yet not. He's not mean. He's not. I like a bad boy. What can I say? I like a good bad boy. <laughs> a good bad boy. There we go. Now, a handful of other likely candidates also came under scrutiny. Some of them were Boeing employees. Some of them were career criminals that some of them were even leading like double lives And there are a few other just crazy characters because you've got to be a little I mean, you've got to be up to some pretty big antics to pull off what he just pulled off. Oh, you have to be a little nuts. Got to be a slightly nuts. Exactly. So they were kind of looking for somebody like a criminal that really kind of thought outside the box. But unfortunately, everybody wound up being ruled out. There was always some issue like they couldn't find real evidence to link them to the case or they didn't have any parachute experience or they didn't have any experience with airplanes or just other circumstances like different you know eyewitness testimonies and things like that 
So nothing really stuck. Over the decades, though, several private cold case teams have come to the forefront with their own compelling opinions on the case. And they've brought out in the forefront some prime suspects. So I'm going to go over a few of them. Again, this is not a comprehensive list, but these are the ones that you'll probably have heard of that were definitely looked into. One of these teams was led by a man named Tom Colbert. He is a private detective that works on cold cases. And he gets hired by a lot of kind of like the National Geographic teams to look into a lot of these cold cases. He doesn't just work on D.B. Cooper, but I will tell you, D.B. Cooper is the one that I know keeps him up at night. Because it's like the holy grail of of cold cases. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. One day, a friend of Colbert's called him and told him a crazy story. He said he had met a man that claimed to know the true identity of D.B. Cooper. This informant that his Colbert's friend knew was named Ron Carlson. And Carlson claimed that his drug dealer from several decades back Name Richard Briggs, also called Dick Briggs, claimed to be D.P. Cooper. He said one night while they were sitting at the bar, Ron Carlson, this informant, called Dick Briggs bluff and said, I know you're not really D.B. Cooper. And Dick Briggs said, oh, I'll prove it to you. I'll prove that I'm D.P. Cooper. So they were at this like restaurant bar and there was this couple sitting with their young son over at one of the tables. And he pointed over to that couple and they're just regular old you know, just a family. And he said, those people over there are going to find some of my money, meaning Cooper's money. And of course, this Ron Carlson's like, okay, man, whatever. Three days later, on February 10th, 1980, that couple was digging along the Columbia River shoreline. They were setting up camp and their son was just out playing along the shoreline, found $6,000 of the $20,000 given to Cooper buried on the riverbank okay play this out for me so did he know where they were staying and he decided he's going to go hide the money where they would find it no idea no idea no one knows and also because again this happened by the time this information came out decades had passed right right but this ron carlson would left being like well he's got to be db cooper db cooper right well, and my other thought is $6,000 is a good percentage of the $20,000. Like, I completely agree. Couldn't, Why would you give that up to just prove that you're D.B. Cooper? Right. Couldn't it just be like 100 But it was definitely <laughs> the money given it to was D.B. Definitely Cooper the money. because the serial numbers matched. And the fact that he said this couple is going to find my money. There's no way of knowing that this, these people. But even if, I guess what's kind of tripping me up is even if he was D.B. Cooper, Still pretty hefty to be like, they are going to find my money. The whole thing is bizarre. It was televised. It was this family that found the money. And everybody that knew the family didn't feel like they had any connection to D.B. Cooper. Okay. So it wasn't like they were in on it or he anything. Was, nobody, the dad was D.B. Cooper. No, nobody felt that. Okay. Everybody felt like they were just like good old boy family that happened to be down there that like found some of this money. Okay. And the money, some of it was degraded because sure. it had been in the water and stuff. So anyway, it was Pretty compelling, though. So this Ron Carlson kind of left that going, okay, he's D.B. Cooper for sure. I so, mean, yeah. Yeah. So he mentioned it to this friend of Colbert, who then mentioned to Colbert. And, of course, Colbert's like, I've got to talk to this guy. Like, mm-hmm. he probably knows it. So this Ron Carlson, he actually had several lie detector tests. Like, everything passed. Like, he, he truly felt like this is D.B. Cooper. 
So Colbert said, well, let me look more into this Dick Briggs. Maybe he really is D.B. Cooper. That's pretty compelling. So he starts looking into him. Unfortunately, after spending almost a year on the case, though, he found that Dick Briggs had no military training, had no parachute training. And really, to look at Dick Briggs, he's a very tall, bulky, muscular, like large presence. And everything that we know about the D.B. Cooper that was on the plane, he's a very tall, slender, lanky, slight man. Okay. So, you know, and Ron Carlson had seen these photos of, you know, these renderings, I guess you will, of D.B. Cooper. But again, his confirmation was Mm -hmm. so he believed so much in this whole finding of the money thing that he kind of looked past the physical descriptions and was like, well, how could it not be him, though? But anyway, after all this, Colbert kind of said, I it's not him. It can't be him. Wow. Okay. But again, how did he get the money? Right? How did he get the money? How did the money? That whole thing, I just have questions. I just have questions about how that all went. I need more information about how that all went down. Well, so Colbert didn't give up, though. Mm -hmm. And I kind of love him. And also, he's basically obsessed with db cooper Mm -hmm. and so we get the benefit of that sure yeah (laughs) i feel bad for his family but we get the benefit (laughs) of it unfortunately there was no chance to interview briggs himself as he died on september 12th 1980 at the age of 41 from a single car accident oh now most of his friends and family believe this was probably Mm. homicide um, it is a little strange. It was a single car accident in the middle of nowhere. Okay. Supposedly nobody was there. But Whatever it is. Potentially homicide? Potentially. Okay. Yeah. Okay. His friends and family thinks that it was. Now, he was a pretty like live large kind of dude. He was the guy that would go out and do like, you know, party tricks. There was actually this story of him going to this um house party and you know, he was this big presence like mm-hmm. of a of a dude, like this huge bodybuilder dude. And he was a little He's a little unhinged a little bit. And there's a story of him being poured a cocktail and he drank his swig. I think it was whiskey in the story, but he drank his swig of whiskey and then proceeded to bite into the glass and start chewing the glass that the cocktail came in. So he's that kind of dude. So potentially crazy enough to jump out of a plane. Yes. That's (laughs) kind of what everybody thought is like. With no parachute training. (laughs) Yeah. He was like always the center of attention, always doing like hat trick, party tricks, you know, kind of thing. And so anyway, he was the personality that could pull it off. Right. And here's what's interesting, except you've already debunked my theory here, but Dan Briggs, DB, but since DB. Oh, Dick Briggs. Yeah. Or yeah, Dick Briggs. Yeah. yeah. Since DB wasn't no. actually the name he registered under that. That's yeah. not fit. But interesting. Colbert, again, was like, okay, this can't be a total dead end because the fact of the matter is this guy did at least know where some of that DB Cooper money So maybe was. some connection. Exactly. So he said, what if he had a partner? Okay. Okay. What if he wasn't the guy that actually jumped out of the plane? But maybe he helped arrange some of it. Like maybe he was in like a getaway vehicle or something. Who knows? Which does make sense because didn't he like parachute over like woods, forest or? Yeah. Yeah. It's like the middle of nowhere. Right. Which doesn't make a lot of sense either. Right. Um, And there's some speculation about that too. Like where he actually jumped out because there were some things that could have possibly delayed his exit from the plane. 
Okay. Um, for one, there's this idea that the money was supposed to be delivered in a zipped satchel. However, it was delivered in a bag, but it wasn't sealed at the top. And so he had to figure out how to like seal the money in because all that money would have just flown out. Right. So it took him longer to prepare this bundle to jump out with. And then at one point, it was reported that he was having some trouble getting the aft stairs to go down. So there is some speculation that because of these additional setbacks, he possibly jumped out of the plane later than he thought. Okay. Which is why he wound up in these woods. Or maybe he jumped out exactly where he wanted to. We don't really know. Right. 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 Yeah. We do know we've never found any parachutes like hung up in trees. We've never found anything that indicates he landed. Okay. Or right. We, we truly we do not know if he even survived. Now we know six thousand dollars of that money was found on a bank. Right. Which, but in the area, it was not in the area where he would have jumped out of the plane. Okay. And here's the deal: say it was just, say this Dick Briggs had found a bag of, of money, a bag of money. How, I don't. He wouldn't have known it was DB Cooper's, unless. Well, I guess. I mean, if I found a bag. Of money over the woods where I know D.B. Cooper jumped out, then maybe I might be able to assume it was. Maybe. But like, that's kind of. So many question marks, right? Yeah, we're kind of Digressing a bit. You're yeah. reaching. We're reaching. But all, I mean, all valid questions, though, mm-hmm. and all questions that have been asked by all of these, you know, detectives right. that are working on this, all these private detectives. So Colbert, again, not wanting to just give up on this Dick Briggs lead, he decides to randomly call the city of Portland. This is pretty genius. So he calls up Portland, Oregon Police Department and asks if there are any old narcs that may have remembered Dick Briggs. Because remember, he's kind of this like... He's a drug dealer. He's a drug dealer. He's, I mean, he's a big personality. Mm-hmm. So people are going to remember him. And so he says, does anybody remember him or any of his associates? Thinking that maybe if there's an accomplice, maybe it's going to be one of these associates. Crazy enough, this 80-year-old guy remembers Dick Briggs. Okay. And gives a list of essentially neighborhood friends of Dick Briggs. Colbert is like, I'm going to call these guys up. I'm going to see if any of them may know somebody that Dick Briggs may have been associated with as far as this hijacking goes. So he starts calling and nobody knows anything until he gets to the last one on the list. And it's this guy named Pudgy Hunt. Okay. I mean, I love all of this. (laughs) It almost doesn't. Pudgy Hunt. That sounds like a vintage retro bad guy's name. Exactly. So Pudgy Hunt tells Colbert about one night when Dick Briggs introduced him to a man named Robert Rackstraw. Pudgy Hunt also recalled seeing an article clipping stating that Robert Rackshaw had been awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross, the nation's highest aviation award for his service in Vietnam. Okay, okay so, so he he knows a thing or two about planes. He knows a thing or two about planes. Colbert then compares a photo of this Robert Rackstraw to a drawing of D.B. Cooper, and it's almost an exact match. Oh, okay. Okay, right? Now I'm starting to think something. Yeah. Now, if this is already turning you into a Cooperite, mm-hmm. I will tell you most of this information I got about Robert Rackstraw and kind of Colbert's whole uh, journey to find him is covered in the Netflix documentary, D.B. Cooper, Where Are You? Okay. So if this has gotten you like a little bit hooked about this storyline, definitely watch that documentary. It's 
three parts, I think, three or four parts. Anyway, it's it's a fun documentary because okay. again, nobody really knows. Sure, but it's kind of following the rabbit hole, if right? Well, and it's a fun little it's a fun little watch. I'm going to give you some of these highlights and some of the facts as I have them here came from that documentary. Okay, and kind of what Colbert was able to to pull out from this situation. As it turned out, when he started looking into it, Robert Rackstraw was an original suspect. Oh, yes. In the D.B. Cooper case. And he was interviewed by the FBI back in 78 and 79. Okay. Where there's smoke, there's fire. Yeah. And there were several of these interviews, which you can see. Oh, my gosh. This guy is so squirrely. People would ask him directly, are you D.B. Cooper? And he would avoid the question. He would just say things like, there's no way I could be D.B. Cooper. I'm afraid of heights. But clearly he was awarded this lying cross for aviation. So anyway, he's cheeky. That's how I would answer if I wanted people to think I was something that I wasn't, but didn't want to lie. Right. Or tell the truth. (laughs) Or tell the truth. Right. Maybe he was. According to D.B. Cooper, Where Are You? The Netflix series I was just mentioning, Rackstraw was discharged from the U.S. Army after serving at Vietnam. And his discharge may have given him motivation to carry out the hijacking. Because remember, the D.B. Cooper hijacker had said he was a little disenchanted Mm -hmm. with his employer. Rackstraw had a lengthy criminal record. He was arrested for bad checks, falsifying military records, and domestic violence. And he was even charged with the murder of his stepfather before being acquitted by a jury. Oh, okay. This guy's colorful. For sure. And capable of doing illegal activity. Definitely. Rackstraw also attempted to fake his own death <laughs> in 1978 <laughs> by crashing a rented plane into Monterey Bay, California. However, he was found by investigators a few months later in charge with stealing an aircraft <laughs> and passing bad checks. <laughs> So he had spent two years in prison for these crimes. Okay. But he's crazy enough to do this. He's wackadoodle. I like it. He's amazing. (laughs) If you ever get a chance to watch the interviews. And he's cheeky. I I know. I really like that. How could I? I'm afraid of heights. As he's a pilot. Like, I like these guys. What does that say about me that I like these bad guys? <laughs> well, and so many of these characters are genuinely, like, lovable in their own weird way. Like, I'm not excusing any of the criminal activity. They're kind of like Captain Jack Sparrow. Okay, so he's a yeah. bad guy. He's a pirate, but you can't help but love, love a bad guy. Or like Dexter, even, the serial killer Dexter. Like, yes. you just, you like him. Yeah. You shouldn't, but you do. Yeah, I know. Human nature is weird. <laughs> <laughs> Fortunately, at the time, the FBI could never find enough evidence to link him definitively to the D.B. Cooper case. And there was also an issue of timeline. So Rackstraw would have been in his late 20s at the time of the hijacking. And D.B. Cooper was always described as being between the age of 35 and 45. Okay. That's now, a jump. also, though, there is the issue with me of are we sure he wasn't wearing makeup or a disguise would you realistically i'm 42 would any amount of makeup or the way i dress or anything like that if you're sitting next to me you're the stewardess would you ever be like oh she was in her 20s like no it's true i guess you would know anyway yeah so rackstraw never even though he did look like the photo it, it just wasn't right and again they can never get anything definitive to link him right so No charges were ever filed against him. And really nothing ever came of that storyline. And then he passed away from heart disease 
in 2019. To me, there is enough, the connection with the money being found. I think he could be good for it. And the age thing just maybe just be a, a weird thing that somebody got wrong. Maybe. He's still a prime candidate, I think, in many people's minds. The age thing does throw a monkey wrench in it. But the other thing about men is, you know, they can grow a beard and then shave a beard and gain and lose yeah. a decade. So I'm just saying that alone isn't enough for me to completely rule him out since everything else about him looked so similar and everything else fits. I think there's still a possibility. Right. Other people think there's absolutely no way it could be Rextra. Okay. Now, another very well-known true crime investigator named Eric Ulis. he's kind of like a contemporary for Colbert. They're both following their own investigation. And he believed for years that a man named Sheridan Peters was D.V. Cooper. And his exploration of uh, Sheridan Peters was captured in the TV show History's Greatest Mysteries on the mm. History Channel. Okay. So you can kind of follow his whole investigation into why he thinks it's it's Sheridan and, you know, Sheridan's investigation and peterson as well was a suspect back in 1971 these are these are to me that's always pretty compelling is when it the evidence points back to someone it who was already looked at exactly like, this is weird it actually it keeps coming back around now the fbi never directly interviewed him to be fair he was always kind of a person of interest a suspect but other independent investigators had talked to him and he was also always coy about whether he was D.B. Cooper or not. As a matter of fact, he wrote in 2007 in an issue of Smoke Jumper, which is a parachuting magazine. He said, quote, actually, the FBI had good reason to suspect me. Friends and associates agreed that I was without a doubt D.B. Cooper. There were too many circumstances involved for it to be a coincidence. Now, these circumstances that he's referring to, he wrote, he explained the circumstances by which he could have been Cooper which I think this is all so fun. But he said, at the time of the heist, I was 44 years old, and that was the approximate age Cooper was assumed to have been. And I closely resembled sketches of the hijacker. But what was more incriminating was the photo of me simulating a sky jumping maneuver for Boeing's news sheet. I was wearing a suit and tie, the same sort of garb Cooper had worn, right down to the Oxford loafers. It was noted that skydivers don't ordinary dress so formally. <laughs> okay. Now, again, the FBI never formally detained him or arrested him in affiliation with the case, but they did finally break down and interview him in 2004. Okay. It took them until 2004 when enough independent investigators said, you should actually look into this guy. Right. Who's kind of like, hey, you should look into me. Right. So they finally wound up looking into him, but really didn't make any moves on it. And Ulyss, the private investigator, believed that Peterson's experience in Southeast Asia during the Vietnam War may have, quote, radicalized him, giving him motive and prompting him to undertake the skyjacking. So this would have been, you know, he's disenchanted with mm -hmm. you know, his employers kind of thing. In 2017, though, Ulyss, on his own, abandoned the Peterson theory, the whole Sheridan peterson theory after he couldn't find one person who ever saw peterson smoke oh interesting because okay. D. D. cooper was definitely a smoker. smoker and maybe you could even say okay a smoker in time of stress but nobody ever saw sheridan peterson smoke so okay. this investigator even after putting years 
years of effort into this was finally like, yeah, I don't think it's him. Because he didn't smoke. Because he didn't smoke. Now, would that be enough for you to write somebody off? Just the fact that they... Probably not. But I do... What I do appreciate about Euless and his investigation is that he wasn't so hooked on his suspect that he was willing to overlook probably important details like that. I don't know. I don't think I would plan to smoke if I wasn't a smoker. Right. Yeah, I, I just don't think I would add in smoking as right. a decoy. Right. No, me neither. He looked like a very natural smoker. Right. That's interesting. And I do uh, also appreciate that he wasn't so one-tracked that he couldn't see and other possibilities. some of the problems with some of these private investigators is they get so hooked on this is the guy and they want it to be the guy. Sure. You kind of force it to be the guy then at some point. When it's not so many times just in hearing true crime stories, I've been like, this is it. This is him. This is him. And then they drop a bomb that means it absolutely couldn't be that person. And I've thought to myself, well, if I was the person in charge of this investigation, I would have a really hard time letting that go. Walking away. After you put so much time and energy. You have to. It's not the person. Yeah. I like that he was able to say, okay, not the guy. But he didn't stop with that. He redirected himself and went back to the case, back to detective work, also tenacious, which Mm -hmm. I really love. So he went back to the detective work and just like Colbert, as a result of this, he wound up coming up with a new lead. He went back and looked at the only piece of evidence that was on the plane, which was the black tie. Oh, okay. There was the tie. Mm -hmm. Now, J.C. Penny, the black clip-on tie from J.C. Penny. In 2017, he was able to get some some scientific examination of that tie, and the lab analysis found a variety of metals on the tie, most notably a unique and rare titanium alloy that Euless's researchers indicate was produced only in one company called Crucible Steel. It was formerly known as Rim Crew Titanium. Okay. So he's thinking, okay, this tie has to be matched back to someone at this plant. Euless contacted the company, now known as, again, Crucible Industries, and tracked down former employees still alive who worked there in the 60s and 70s and traveled to Pittsburgh where Crucible Steel was located. This led Euless to a man he now believes was probably D.B. Cooper, the late Vincent Peterson. Now, of course, the same last name as his previous suspect, but spelled differently. Okay. And he says... I am satisfied that D.B. Cooper came from this company. Euless has dug into Vincent Peterson's life and work, finding what could be connections to the hijacking. Euless tried to find if Vince Peterson was in the original FBI case files. Mm. But what has been released so far, he was not one of the original suspects. Okay. Which, interestingly, several of these other men were. Okay. So he would be kind of a new suspect, which... It's also interesting to me that there are like new suspects that are coming out. Euless believes that Peterson's possible motive for the plane jacking would have been for money because in 1971, the steel industry had a lot of labor strife and economic upheaval and some 47,000 steel workers in the Pennsylvania area were laid off and he couldn't find if Vincent Peterson was 
of those steel workers that okay. were laid off. Mm-hmm. But if he was, that could have been the motivation for the skyjacking. Because again, this whole like disgruntled with my employer thing. And Euless notes that he's talked to Vincent's son and that his son doesn't believe his dad was the hijacker as far as he knew his dad was just a regular honest steel worker but he thinks that he might be onto something and he definitely believes whoever db cooper was worked at that plant my question is how do we know that db cooper didn't just borrow this tie from someone. That's what I was thinking. I was thinking the tie could have come from anywhere. And again, why? Why would I borrow a tie from you? It's not like a black tie would probably have been hard to come by. It's not like wearing a tie in 1971 would have been unusual. They didn't have DNA testing and stuff like that back then. So he wouldn't be like, oh, I'm going to throw them off by wearing my friend's black tie. They were able to extract a DNA sample. Okay. From the tie. Well, what'd that tell us? Well, Number one, it told us it was not Sheridan Peterson, his original suspect. So further confirmation. So he was able to walk away from it. And we also have confirmation that it was not Sheridan Peterson. And we currently do not know who it matches to because in order to run through CODIS, you would have to go through law enforcement. Mm -hmm. And at this point, the FBI has no interest in looking into the case. Okay. So that's crazy that we have uh, potential oh, DNA yeah. evidence that could answer. But I understand the why they don't. But just because you find out who owned the tie doesn't mean you necessarily find D.B. Cooper either. True. But if it comes back to one of these guys who looks good for it in every other way, I mean, don't you think it's we could. possible, but I'm just saying I don't feel like that DNA sample is the smoking gun. That's all I'm saying. I don't either because who knows how many people touched that tie. Right. And again, back in 1971, they probably wouldn't have even known how to like process it. You know what I mean? Like it, the chain of custody, who knows how that went back in 1971. Yeah. But I think it's worth looking into yeah. if we want to try to solve this. Well, I say more than even the DNA sample, Euless really believes this very rare titanium being on the tie is a real clue. And I do feel like there's some merit to that. Like, sure. That's not an accident. Somehow, I mean, so clearly whoever wore that tie at some time worked at this titanium plant, I would assume. I would, too, or was exposed to or exposed to it It somehow. But how exactly? So Vince Peterson died in 2002 at the age of 83. So all these suspects are passing away. But anyway, who knows? Maybe. I mean, the fact that it's somebody new is kind of interesting. Absolutely. To me, kind of what makes, you know, the legend of D.B. Cooper so interesting is that it is just like a normal person. Like some of these other guys with their long histories and the previous skyjackings and things like that kind of like takes the fun out of it. What makes it fun is that it's just some normal guy who's like, yeah, I'm going to go do this and then I'm just going to keep it my secret. One other suspect that gets a lot of attention is William Gossett. William Gossett was a Marine Corps Army and Army Air Forces veteran who had served in Korea and Vietnam. So a lot of experience. He was a skilled parachutist and had survival training. And it would have matched the skills that Cooper would have needed to pull off what he did. And land in the woods. Exactly. And land in the woods. Exactly. In 2008, Gossett's son, Greg Gossett, told the standard examiner he believed his father was Cooper. Ooh. Which is, we always love that. Yeah. He recalled that in 1988, when he turned 21, his dad took out the FBI sketch of Cooper from a filing cabinet 
and ask his son who the man in the picture resembled, basically insinuating himself. William Gossett then told his son, I just want you to know, in 1971, I hijacked a plane. Okay. (laughs) Greg Gossett, again, told the Standard Examiner that he asked his father what he did with the ransom money, and William Gossett allegedly pulled out two keys he claimed were a safe deposit box in a bank in Vancouver where the money was stored. Kirk Gossett, another son of William Gossett, said his father told him multiple times he was responsible for the Cooper hijacking. So now we have two sons that report that their father has told them that he was D.B. Cooper. Greg Gossett shared his father said he could never tell anyone until after he had passed away, until after his father had passed away. And when he passed away in 2003, both of the sons came forward and said, hey, we think our father was T.B. Cooper. Ultimately, the FBI did not have any evidence to implicate Gossett, and there has been no way to place him in the Pacific Northwest at the time of the hijacking. FBI Special Agent Larry Carr told ABC News in 2008, quote, there is not one link to the D.B. Cooper case other than the statements Gossett made to someone, end quote. Well, there should be keys to a safety deposit box with the money inside. Right. As far as I know, those keys were never found. Which if you were D.B. Cooper and you were admitting it to your adult sons and saying you cannot tell anybody until after I pass, wouldn't you leave them? To be found after your death? Well, this is what I think the allure of this case is, is so many people want to be D.B. Cooper. Right. They want to be the cool guy. Right. And there have been so many people investigated because of deathbed confessions. Okay. They, I mean, so this, so again, without the evidence, this may just be another one. There were no less than four suspects that mm-hmm. I read about that were investigated solely because as they were passing away, they said, I'm Dan Cooper. Okay. I mean, wild. Right. It's, it's really wild. You know, again, it's this like, you know, this Jack Sparrow. Right. You know, situation. I don't know. There's got to be some more scientific term for that. But where it is, it's this like charming bad guy. Which we all, maybe not all, but a lot of us all kind of just want to be just a little bit of a rule breaker, but still a good guy. I don't know. Yeah. Because otherwise we're plain normal people. (laughs) We all love mystery. Right. That's why everyone loves this podcast. Right. (laughs) (laughs) But really to this day, the hunt for the real D.B. Cooper still persists. In 2016, a successful Freedom of Information suit entitled the public to 20,000 pages of the D.B. Cooper case. And so the FBI has been releasing a few redacted files every month in chronological order, which is offering this kind of like slow drip of information about the D.B. Cooper case and his legendary heist into the world of Cooperites, who are just like salivating every time they get more information, right? And the Skyjacker known as D.B. Cooper has really just become, again, this folk hero. The late FBI agent Ralph Himmelsbach, who led the Bureau's investigation for a decade, believed Cooper most likely died somewhere in the Northeast woods. But I don't know. That's not much fun. I mean, because there always is a chance. We're literally going on the fact that he survived. Maybe he didn't even survive the fall. Right. And that's kind of the FBI's take on it at this point. They're no longer spending any time because they believe he perished or at least that's what where they'd like it like to leave it mm-hmm. i think the fact that no one was 
hurt or killed. Because at first I was a little annoyed. I'm like, how could they close the case? But really it makes sense because they're spending so much time and money working on a case when there are really other probably more important cases, if you will. A case that really in the scheme of things doesn't matter. It, it really is it's in, inconsequential this, in a lot of ways. Right. It's just, it doesn't. It's just curiosity at this point. Right. I mean, in a perfect world, would we solve every unsolved case? Of course. But given time and resources and the fact that nobody got hurt, it's a pretty inconsequential amount of money even at this point. At this point. Exactly. At the time. Right. It was a lot. But these banks have already absorbed that loss. Whatever was going to happen has happened. Right. Well, and the money is probably degraded, destroyed. Well, right, right. If it landed in a river. But here we are talking about this 50 years later, and really social media has pushed this along mm-hmm. big time. The slow leak of information from the FBI has pushed this along. And a lot of amateur and professional sleuths, they really love to follow these leads, and everybody wants to be the guy to solve it. Because think about it, who would be almost more famous than D.B. Cooper? Right. The guy that finds D.B. Cooper. Right. Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. So I think there's a lot of, uh, you know, you want to be that guy. Mm-hmm. You want to be the one that figures it out. You right. want to be the one that cracks the case. And I think that's what keeps a lot of these guys going. I think a lot of it is just curiosity. But I think a lot of it, I mean. Well, sure. If you're that if guy. You, can solve you the get mystery. it first. Yeah. You kind of get that title, if you will. Stephanie, I have to tell you, though I was not yet born and I am a woman. I am D.B. Cooper. (laughs) (laughs) I knew it. I knew it. As I said in the beginning of the case, my list of suspects is not anywhere near exhaustive and new names are always being added and taken off the list. As a matter of fact, many investigators and researchers have named this phenomenon the Cooper curse. It's the trap of finding a suspect that looks good and spending more and more time on it. And you think they're the perfect fit. And then right before you're 100%, something breaks Mm. and you find out they're not the one. And it happens. You can see it just in these examples I've given you. It's like, yes, 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 yes. Uh, No. But then you almost spend so much time into it. You're like, I can't quit. I've got to keep going. I've got to keep going forward. Now, I would remiss if I didn't tell you about the annual CooperCon that... (laughs) Is very well attended every November. Can we go? Well, I would love to. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, Even though I feel like we certainly wouldn't have anything to add, but we may be able to take away. (laughs) I'm sure there are several people there who believe they know who D.B. Cooper is. Oh, they absolutely. There are probably several people there who claim to be D.B. Cooper. (laughs) Absolutely. Can we dress in D.B. Cooper like suits with the Uh, ties and the hats? Is there any other way of attending? (laughs) We have to take up smoking before then, but I'll work on it. (laughs) Yeah. Another one, you know, I'm always about supporting other creators and, and their craft. And there's a podcast called the Cooper Vortex. Oh. And it's it's this gentleman. He's been doing it for years now. And he has different investigators come or different eyewitnesses or somebody who thinks they saw something. And he lets them tell their theory. And oh, that's fun. He has over 100 episodes of just people coming and wow. talking about D.B. Cooper. 
Wow. That's how far this goes. The first episode I listened to literally his first episode. It was like two and a half hours of just this one guy talking about his theory about who D.B. Cooper is and why he thinks. That. Wow. That's really interesting. Darren Schaefer is the host name of this Cooper Vortex. And he did a special cameo appearance in the Netflix series. The oh, okay. D.B. Cooper, Where Are You? That Because Colbert. he is an expert. Well, so was, yeah. And. <laughs> What's amazing with him, so I told you, he's done these deep dives Mm -hmm. on Cooper, like every few months. It's these like hours worth of content. And even he said when he started it, he figured he would do some interviews, he would get some more information. And he said at this point, even having gone years with researching it, he is less confident in D.B. Cooper's identity than he was when he first started. Wow. So that gives you any idea how far the rabbit hole goes. And you've kind of already said it without saying it, but of all the cases out there, there are several that at the end of them, I say, I truly hope this is one that is solved in my lifetime. This is what I truly hope is never solved. Right. I like the idea of D.B. Cooper just being out there, like almost like this like mythological creature, if you will. It reminds me of, I just watched The Princess Bride with my kids and talking about the Dread Pirate Roberts and how he's a personality. It's not about him being a person. It's it's just this personality that lives on and on yes. and on and on. And it doesn't matter who it actually is. It's yes. more the character of this person. Yeah. Kind of reminds me of that. So I kind of feel like that too. I mean, at this point, as far as the FBI is concerned, the case is officially closed. There's no plan to move forward with any official investigation. So these kind of private investigators that are really being, I mean, they're getting some big money, to be fair. I mean, there's a lot of you know, the History Channel and, you know, Netflix and Prime has some. I mean, so there's definitely some money backing and people are putting, of course, their own money into it and stuff. Um, So there's definitely research going on, but nothing official. Um, So who knows? I mean, I I really do hope the fight, you know, the search continues. I mean, what would happen to Cooper Khan if he was actually found? Right. It would just, what a bummer. <laughs> and at this point, there are so many theories. I think it would be hard for what I know about the Cooperites. I think it would be very hard for all of them to come together and say, yeah, we agree. Like, this is the guy. Well, especially if you know beyond a shadow of a doubt, you've decided it's this person and then it's not that person. Yeah. It's very hard to let that go, I think. Right. But then I think, I guess you could start a whole new movement of disproving what has been decided. And, yeah. and I, th- I think there are so many legs and tentacles and... It's really fascinating. Mm-hmm. I I love that things like this exist. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah. Well, thanks, Stephanie, for that really super fun mystery of D.B. Cooper. I the just love it. mystery of D.B. Cooper. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Another thing I love is our Branch of Hope report. Yes. I do think that February might be one of my favorites. We have the National Trust for Historic Preservation that we covered in our 16th Street bombing episode. And we have the Jennifer Kessie Criminal Justice Endowed Scholarship. Oh, my gosh. It is such a wonderful scholarship, but I do think they need a shorter name, (laughs) (laughs) which we covered, of course, in the Jennifer Kessie case um, and our second week in February. And if either of those nonprofit speak to you, please head to our Twitter page, our Facebook page, and let us know where you would like our money to go. Again, you are under no obligation to give any additional funds. This is just letting us know which portion of our profits from our Patreon and sponsors um, need to go. So reach out, get involved, let us know uh, what you'd like us to do. 
Absolutely. And if you loved this episode, which I know you did, you love us, which I know you do, or you love the Branch of Hope, please like and subscribe and tell someone. You can also join our Patreon. Please join our Patreon. We're having so much fun over there. And you can do that by going to Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com. And looking up the Dark Oak, you'll see several different categories that you can join. Send us an email at thedarkoakpodcast at gmail.com. We are open to your questions, comments, or anything else you would like to share. And for other ways to connect, hop over to thedarkoak.com. And be sure to follow us to our next episode where we cover the mysterious death of Oog. De Plaza. Oog. I am going to be telling you about Oog de la Plaza. And let me tell you, we have a dead body behind a locked door. There's no sign of an assailant, yet no murder weapon near the body. It's a complete mystery as to what happened. You've got to check it out. Next week, kiddos. See you there, shiver seekers. You guys rock. This episode of The Dark Oak was created, researched, written, recorded, hosted, edited, published, and marketed by Cynthia and Stephanie of Just Us Gals Productions and made possible by you, our shiver-seeking listener. Special thanks goes to Justice Himes for our incredible artwork and Ryan Crete for our amazing music.